0: You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me fix What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make it, an offer. You talking to me? Straight out of the train. I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, yes. I'm better. He's lion! Snap out of it. If they call me Mr. Boy's best friend, mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. No. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great holiday. If you got a holiday last week, I went to the homeland for a few days, got some amazing news I can't share publicly yet, and ate a lot of turkey. Good times are had all around. So, for this week on Two Sentence Movie Reviews of movies I saw in a movie theater, we've got Ghostbusters Afterlife. Ghostbusters was a weird movie. Like, the first half of the film and the second half are essentially two parts of two completely different movies. It definitely looked like some reshoots happened, but not everyone could go back. So some people just kind of, like, pop up at random intervals and you're like, all right, that person's in this movie. That's my guess anyway, but it's very jarring The film overall is nostalgic goodness with little other substance overall, but if you liked the original Ghostbusters, this film will tickle that nostalgic fancy. The last bit of the film anyway, this, this, it was, it was a rough ride. It's, it it wasn't that good. I'm not going to lie. So we're in December and like last year, there will only be two episodes this month, starting with this special one offer about two women who took on the Hollywood studio systems of their days. On July 29, 2021, Scarlett Johansson sued Disney for breaking her contract when the film Black Widow was released concurrently on streaming and in movie theaters. Johansson claimed that doing this cost her her back-end bonuses a big part of her salary for that film. Scarlett's lawsuit is hardly the first time an actress has had to go to battle with a major film studio in order to get what she was due. 78 years earlier, Olivia de Havilland went to war against Warner Brothers to break free from her oppressive studio contract. Doing this would be the first crack in the wall of the Hollywood studio system. This week on The Tinsel Factory, we're discussing both of these women's fights with their prospective film studios what Olivia de Havilland's battle led to, and what Scarlett Johansson's settlement might mean for how talent is paid going forward. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Olivia de Havilland might not be a name or face you can conjure up if you're a more casual film watcher, but you've more than likely seen her work. She is best known for playing Melanie Wilkes in Gone with the Wind, Maid Marian in Errol Flynn's The Adventures of Robin Hood, or as Emily Livingston in the disaster film Airport 77. In total, Olivia would appear in 49 feature films before finishing up her acting career on television. In the early 1940s, Olivia was under contract at Warner Brothers. As you may remember if you listen to every episode of this podcast, and if you do, thank you, you'll remember that the studio system was in place during the 1940s at all of the big movie studios in Hollywood at this time, and that meant that the film studios could pretty much do as they pleased with their rostered talent. This included deciding their salaries, films they got to work on, and even what they ate and who they dated in some cases. Actors and writers, directors, etc. studios had on the roster could also be lent out to other studios and forced to work on or be in their films. This even happened to our girl Olivia. She was lent out to Sam Goldman Pictures in 1939 to star in the caper film Raffles, which she did not appreciate. De Havilland had signed her contract with Warner in 1936. She was just 20 years old. After a string of parts and swashbuckling films, including Alongside Errol Flynn and Adventures of Robin Hood, she appeared in Gone with the Wind, which became the biggest film ever released, adjusted for inflation. At the start of the 1940s, Olivia began turning down films that Warner was offering her because, in her opinion, they didn't showcase her talent. Offered is a nice word for what they did. Demanded is more accurate. Well, she started refusing everything the studio sent to her, leading to her first suspension. Think of this as being put in the penalty box. And since she was in there due to her contract, she was not allowed to make a film anywhere else. She also wasn't paid. Olivia did eventually agree to appear in the musical drama My Love Came Back in 1940. Soon after that, she appeared in her sixth film with Errol Flynn called Santa Fe Trail, which also came out in 1940 and was actually the biggest hit at the box office that year. Olivia would have to skip the premiere for the film, however, as she came down with appendicitis and had to be rushed to emergency surgery. While recovering in the hospital, Olivia turned down several more scripts Warner had sent her way, leading to a second suspension. I mean, the woman was in the hospital, for Christ's sake, so this comes off more as a power play on Jack Warner's part than an actual punishment for her. Olivia then starred in a string of commercially successful films for Warner, including The Strawberry Blonde with James Cagney. Olivia was getting tired, however, of always playing, quote-unquote, the girl, as Errol Flynn would later describe it, and wished to prove herself as a more serious actress. Warner would not give her the parts she desired to do this. The only film she would recall later from Warner that gave her any fulfilling challenge was as the title character in the film Princess O'Rourke from 1943. 1943 was also the year Olivia's seven-year contract with Warner was supposed to come to an end. But there was a nasty little surprise coming for her, courtesy of Jack. Warner. Now, if you remember the episode from September of last year about Warner Brothers, you likely remember that Jack Warner, or Jack the Warden, as Olivia referred to him, could be, well, kind of an asshole. Like a first-class, grade-A asshole. This is the man whom would, later in life, have a lawyer fire his son from the studio that also bore his name, and also push out the living brothers that he'd founded the studio with, after all. But in 1943, Olivia de Havilland was informed that six months had been added to her contract to make up for those suspensions she'd gotten. At this time, Warner and several other film studios argued that California law allowed them to suspend contract players for rejecting a role, and that period of suspension could be added to the contract period. So the studios could put talent on timeouts, like children, pretty much over anything, and the talent could do little to nothing about it. Olivia's refusal of roles that led to her suspensions meant that in Warner Brothers' eyes she had 6 more months before she was done with them. Most contract players at this time accepted the studio's control, but a few actors had tried to challenge the statute before, most notably Betty Davis, who mounted an unsuccessful lawsuit against Warner Brothers in the 1930s over similar issues. The impending lawsuit annihilated her financially and forced Betty to return to Warner Brothers with her tail between her legs with a tarnished reputation as an ungrateful actress. Olivia decided not to take this extension lying down and fought back. On August 23rd, 1943, at the advice of her lawyer Martin Gang, whom would go on to defend members of the Hollywood Blacklist and backed by the Screen Actors Guild, Olivia filed a lawsuit against Warner Brothers in the Los Angeles Superior Court seeking declaratory judgment that she could no longer be held under her Warner Brothers contract. She claimed this on the grounds of an existing section of the California Labor Code, which forbade an employer from enforcing a contract against an employee for longer than seven years from the date of first performance. Jack Warner was pissed. Quote, we brought her from obscurity to prominence and can show that we made a profit on every picture she has ever been in. and made it possible for her to get $125,000 for each picture, which she is now getting, he said. Gang warned Olivia that the Warner Brothers lawyers, whom would put her on the witness stand during the trial, would try to make her angry so she would appear, quote, like a spoiled movie actress. Later in her life, talking to the American Academy of Achievement, Olivia recalled the event, saying... Quote, he, the Warner lawyer, would say accusingly in thunderous tones, Is it not true, Mr. Haviland, that on such-and-such a date, you failed to report to the set to play such-and-such a role in such-and-such a film? And I, remembering Martin Gang's instructions, said, I didn't refuse, I declined. In November 1943, the court ruled in favor of Olivia, but Warner quickly filed for an appeal. On March 15, 1944, the court once again ruled in her favor. Variety declared the news with the headline, De Havilland, Free Agent. This court decision became one of the most significant legal rulings in Hollywood, reducing the power of the studios and extending greater creative freedom to performers for the first time. California's seven-year rule, as articulated by the Court of Appeal in analyzing labor code section 2855 in the De Havilland case, is still known today as the De Havilland Rule. Her legal victory, which cost her $13,000, equivalent to about $190,000 now in legal fees, won to Haviland the respect and admiration of her peers, among them her own sister Joan Fontaine, with whom she had a lifelong tumultuous relationship. Fontaine would comment, quote, Hollywood owes Olivia a great deal. Warner Brothers, <laughs> Jack Warner, reacted to Olivia's victory by circulating a letter to other studios to try and blackmail her from ever working again. Didn't work. So it did slow her down, but she would sign a two-picture deal with Paramount Pictures in 1945, and would work pretty consistently until her retirement in 1988. Along the way, she would win two Oscars, playing the complex women she had risked her entire career to portray. She lived out her twilight years in Paris, and passed away in 2020 at the age of 104. In the intervening years after the court's ruling, the studio system began to crumble as filmmakers and actors began setting out on their own to make their art the way they wanted. While this did happen before this, those films were almost guaranteed to never have any kind of mainstream success, as the studios also owned the majority of the movie theaters. No longer needing the studio crutch, more and more actors formed their own production companies or found projects that suited their tastes and ambitions. Performers like Brad Pitt, Kirk Douglas, Robert Redford, Reese Witherspoon, Clint Eastwood, and yes, Scarlett Johansson would not have the careers they do today had Olivia's lawsuit not weakened the control of the major studios. Performers began benefiting from the de Havilland rule almost immediately. Stars like Jimmy Stewart and Clark Gable, whose contracts had been extended because of their service in World War II, managed to end their studio contracts and turned them into very successful careers as freelancers. The de Havilland rule further freed people like Johnny Carson from his NBC contract, Jared and Sharon Leto out of a contract that limited the work of their band 30 Seconds to Mars, Courtney Love, The Smashing Pumpkins, and Rita Ora have all cited the de Havilland ruling in lawsuits, and all of them won. Four years after the final de Havilland ruling in 1948, the movie studios got another blow after they were informed by the Supreme Court that they could no longer own movie theaters as this created a monopoly. Between these two rulings, the oligarchical studios began to crumble. In 1950, Jimmy Stewart would take a president-setting deal taking percentage points on a film's box office in lieu of a big studio salary this practice became the norm for stars in subsequent decades, including Scarlett Johansson and Black Widow. By taking on Warner Brothers, Olivia de Havilland opened up an era of creative freedom that continues to this day. Actors are allowed to pick their own roles, unburdened by the ire of the studios they work for. No one can be held in any kind of contract, entertainment or otherwise in California for longer than seven years with the same contract. So today, actors are pretty much allowed to do their things, their own little movie moguls of their own careers. But what happens when the entire way people entertain themselves starts to shift? Unless you're listening to this like years from now, I don't have to tell any of y'all that the last 21 months or whatever the hell it is now have been rough because of COVID. The level of roughness and terribleness has varied wildly from person to person based on all matter of reasons, including socioeconomic status, mental health, financial concerns, getting freaking COVID. The list goes on and on. But now that things are slowly slowly returning to something that resembles something like life before the pandemic, the movie studios are now fighting a battle between the shiny new streaming services, which everyone got used to relying on during the pandemic for entertainment, and the old standard, the movie theater. We're still very much in a period of transition entertainment wise, most likely trending towards something in the middle, though likely more streamer forward, especially for the next couple of years. But this hybrid movie release thing that's been going on this year is going to mean a lot of changes if it keeps up that way in the way that people are paid. Unlike the era in which Olivia de Havilland fought for her rights, today actors are a secondary commodity to the properties they appear in. When Olivia was fighting, the entire system was very movie star forward. Before we get to Scarlett Johansson's role in all of this, we need to discuss residuals and net profit, as that is not something we've really discussed on this podcast and the way I've talked about the studio system. And if you don't have, like, at least some basics, a lot of this isn't going to make a ton of sense. I will try not to bore you to tears, but it is actually very crucial for honestly understanding how movies make money at all. So this is real good for y'all who have to go home for the holidays and explain to your families that aren't in the industry how what you do yields money. So, you know, helpful that way. Anyway, residuals for movies and also TV shows, but we're focusing on movies because movie podcast, are payments for DVD and digital release and sales and a share of the deal made between a studio and network for the film to air on television or for online streaming. Residuals are calculated and administered by the trade unions, for example, SAG-AFTRA for Actors, the Directors Guild of America, the Producers Guild, or the Writers Guild. Before the 1950s, of course, we had the studio system, residuals did not exist, as the studio paid. their talent on a set weekly basis whether they were making a film or not this was a system that Olivia de Havilland helped dismantle. As television became an established medium in the late 40s and 50s, and old films began airing on television, unions like SAG, which was its name before it became sag would fight for payment for their talent, as somebody was making money off of these films appearing in people's homes, and there was no precedent for paying actors for this because TV didn't exist when a lot of these movies were made, and this would eventually lead to a strike to successfully procure an agreement that would lead to residual payments for talent for re-releases of films in multiple different formats. This This would eventually include home video, streaming, and whatever the hell they come up with in the next 20, 40, 50 years. Over time, as network television became more structured, reruns became more popular, and cable television emerged as a competitor, guilds negotiated with the studios to achieve the most favorable agreement for their members. Did everyone agree? No. So is life. Now, movies and television shows are paid out according to different rules. Again, this is a film podcast, so we're going to focus on movies. On the movie side of things, there are two types. There are a couple different types of residuals. Firstly, there is variable residuals. This type takes into account the gross income, not the net profit, which we'll get to in a sec, of a film that is sold by a company, studio, or distributor, and then applies each particular guild's percentage rate to the gross income. That number then gets divided amongst the qualified talent on the project. This is like for if a film gets bought by a bigger company for distribution, or bought for a streamer to air on their platform. That streamer or that distributor or whatever paid that studio that made that film a certain price. The actor, performers, whatever, they get a cut of that according to variable residuals. Next are fixed residuals. This is a flat payment based on different criteria and a formula that has no relation to the income of a project. This kicks in when a studio, distributor, or producer submits the revenue for a project, then each guild's percentage rate gets applied to it and distributed to that particular talent based on how much time they worked and how much money they were paid. These factors typically give them a greater share in the residuals because it's not factoring in box office take. Now, not all actors will get residuals or net profit, which again, we'll get to in a second. Non-union actors, for example, typically don't get them. They aren't in the union after all. They're not paying their dues. The union's not going to do anything for free. Most non-union contracts include clauses that allow the work to be used repeatedly without the actor being able to ever make a claim for residuals. Non-union actors are typically towards the beginning of their careers, so they typically have to take these jobs out of necessity rather than picking and choosing. Something's got to pay rent. Actors whose work is not included in the final project are also not eligible for residuals. If you've seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, for example, Tim Roth was cut out of that movie. He went to set, got in costume, got in makeup, performed, but his scenes were all cut from the final film. In the case of something like that happening, you do not get residuals. You get paid for the work you did on set, but you are not eligible for residuals because you are not in the film. Background actors, or extras as most of you will probably know them, are also not paid residuals unless they somehow get upgraded to a principal role. Now, run to net profit. Net profit is the money which remains after the costs of making, marketing, advertising, financing, and distributing a film have been repaid accordingly. In other words, net profit is what is left over after everybody has been paid their due. When people refer to points on the back end, they are referring to a percentage of a film's net profits. Many actors will take reduced salaries in exchange for a bigger piece of this number. For a big budget blockbuster like Black Widow, this could mean a shit ton of money. This is usually a big part of contracts. This section will typically run like 40 pages plus, and I'm not even close to qualified to explain the nitty gritty of this. Basically, all you need to know for right now is that once everything is taken out that is owed, the spoils are split up accordingly depending on agreements made beforehand. Since the 1950s, as actors and other creative talent have been allowed to bounce around studios, they have enjoyed considerable leverage with back end. The tippy-top talent of Tinseltown began earning a cut of a movie's profit starting in the 1950s. The actors and studios would either prosper or tank together. Streaming has completely torn apart that model. Subscriber numbers are now the metric for success, not box office revenue. And Disney and other streamers are not sharing subscription revenue with actors or the like. In the case of Netflix, they pay out way higher in the contracts, which is why you've been seeing all those crazy numbers for deals people are getting. Like Eddie Murphy, for example, got something like $100 million. But he will get no further residuals. That is all the money he's getting for all the work he is doing. Netflix could make a ton of more money than $100 million working with Eddie Murphy, or they could get a ton less. Either way, Eddie Murphy gets that $100 million or whatever it was. Disney is not sharing subscriber percentages with their actors, whom did not sign on to be in a film that premiered partially on the digital platform. This is where Scarlett Johansson's lawsuit comes in. According to the lawsuit, Scarlett claimed that Disney breached their contract when they released Black Widow in theaters and on their streaming platform Disney Plus at the same time. Disney used her name, she claimed, to boost their stock price and subscriber base at the cost of their agreement. It would later come out that she had requested that the film even be pushed back several more months to allow the box office to recover from COVID. Disney turned her down and did the hybrid release instead. As Disney would so tactfully announce a day or two after the lawsuit was filed on July 29th, 2021, Scarlett Johansson was paid $20 million to appear in Black Widow, which is one of the highest initial paydays, second really only to Robert Downey Jr.'s paydays, for the entire MCU before the back end kicked in. In a move Jack Warner, or let's be honest, Walt Disney himself would have been proud of, the studio heavily alluded that Scarlett was being ungrateful and greedy. The pandemic had been a struggle for everyone. We should all be so lucky as to get a $20 million payday. This was clearly a tactic by Disney to turn the public against Scarlett, but that didn't really go their way, as Disney, as we were all pretty much aware, was making hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars during the pandemic, especially because of Disney+. Plus. Scarlett's lawsuit essentially argued that the concurrent release in theaters and on Disney Plus deprived her of potential millions in box office dollars tied to her back end percentage points on the film's box office. Digital purchase residuals are calculated differently. Disney further responded, saying that Scarlett's complaint has, quote, no merit whatsoever, and that, quote, the release of Black Widow on Disney Plus with Premiere Access has significantly enhanced her ability to earn additional compensation. Do you see the subtle gaslighting there? I sure do. But unless her contract stated that the streaming revenue would be factored into her box office take, this is inaccurate, as actors don't get a cut of subscriber dues, but rather part of the deal made between the studio that made the film and the platform it ends up on. She and the other actors would get a cut of the digital sales, but again, that is typically less percentage than a box office take. Scarlett's lawsuit further brought to light the fact that talent and others on major films, not just performers at her level, were likely getting massively shafted with reduced box office. Scarlett, many were quick to point out, fell on the sore to bring this issue to mainstream attention, as a less famous actor bringing this up would not have gotten anywhere near the attention she did. And these days, actors have less leverage in the streaming era for a number of reasons anyway. Firstly, only a handful of big streaming services preside over the entire industry, which gives them unprecedented power over the content the masses have access to. Popular intellectual properties like Marvel, DC, Star Wars, Fast and the Furious, Harry Potter, James Bond, Jurassic Park, etc. have become the most coveted asset in the streaming era, rather than landing a Tom Hanks or a Scarlett Johansson for a role. Instead, the studios want franchises that they can milk into endless movies and TV series to keep subscribers happy. Just think of all the Marvel and Star Wars shows Disney has announced in the last few years. That is the move they're going through here, and they really don't care if the actors are happy or not. An actor's power to bargain is further restricted because they don't even know how successful their films are. In the past, box office results assigned a clear dollar value to a movie, guaranteeing actors a specific bonus or percentage payment. In streaming, the owner of the platform is the only party who knows exactly how many people watched a movie or how subscription numbers changed. These numbers are not made public in any meaningful way, forcing talent to just have to take the word of the higher-ups that everything is going fine or going terrible. Terribly. This is a huge step back for talent on all levels, likening it more to the studio system of old. A ton of other studios have also released their films theatrically and on streamers at the same time this year, so why haven't more stars sued their studios over the simultaneous releasing? Well, because most of the others, including Warner Brothers, Paramount and Universal, all made deals with their talent when they decided to release films concurrently on streaming. Warner doled out as much as $200 million to keep their talent happy. Guess who didn't? Scarlett Johansson's lawsuit has shown the need for changing compensation for performers once more now that studios are prioritizing streaming over theatrical releases, subscribers over box office. On September 30th, 2021, it was announced that a settlement had been made. Quote, I am happy to have resolved our differences with Disney, said Scarlett. Quote, I'm incredibly proud of the work we've done together over the years and have greatly enjoyed my creative relationship with the team. I look forward to continuing our collaboration in years to come. Disney Studios chairman Alan Bergman added, quote, I'm very pleased that we have been able to come to a mutual agreement with Scarlett Johansson regarding Black Widow. We appreciate her contributions to the Marvel Cinematic Universe and look forward to working together on a number of upcoming projects, including Disney's Tower of Terror. In the wake of Scarlett Johansson's suits, several other A-listers are said to be considering filing similar lawsuits. As of yet, that has not come to fruition. Cruella's Emma Stone closed a deal two weeks after Johansson's suit was announced to star in a sequel to her Cruella film. This was seen as a move on Disney's end to try and appease frustrated talent. Emma Stone was rumored to be one of those considering a lawsuit as she got a similar raw deal when Disney put her film on streaming and theatrical at the same time. So what ties Olivia and Scarlett? Well, both women went against their studios, fighting contracts that their studios used to try and control them financially, limiting their box office earning potential, and when they tried to call out their studios, both were labeled as ungrateful and out of touch. In a way, much of what's been happening within the studios today is showing whispers of the old studio system, just with different names and faces. As Hollywood studios increasingly merge into big old conglomerates with distribution-led by their streaming platforms, and with the Paramount ruling, the one that said movie studios can't own theaters, being overturned late last year, it is possible that something studio system-like may re-emerge in the wake of all of this. Not just Scarlett Johansson's suit, but just everything with the streamers, just everything that's happening, we might land back where we started. This would include contract player deals with actors and other creatives once again tied to one studio under a fixed contract. In a way, this exists in the form of things like development deals in which an actor or director, writer, etc., has a deal with a studio to develop projects for that studio, but most of these deals allow them to make a project elsewhere. If a studio turns something down, they're also typically allowed to work other places as well as on other projects, as long as they're keeping up their end of the deal. This could go away if a studio system reemerges and it's important for talent to know how to bargain for their worth accordingly. But it's far too early to tell if any of this will happen. Whatever happens next, actors and other creatives are going to have to change the way they approach their work. This was already going to happen with the advent of streaming. The coronavirus pandemic just expedited it. At the end of the day, Olivia and Scarlett's names will be tied together in film history as two women whom dared to fight against the major studios for their rightful share in the art they helped create. One thing is for sure, cinema will never be the same. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, the 2021 finale. The good, movie theaters are back. The bad, the 93rd Oscar ceremony. And the ugly, Army Hammer is a cannibal, maybe? Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.